Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, July the 29th, 2023. It is currently 4.11 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it is time once again to turn our attention to the proper distinction between law and gospel. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you to give me just a few moments of your time. Hopefully you will be gracious. Hopefully you will be patient. But I said there's something I'm going to start doing whenever I receive an email saying, hey, your account has just been charged this much money in order to broadcast. I'm just going to turn on the microphone the very next time and share that with everyone. And then you as a listener can decide if you find this program to be worth anything. And if you so do, and if you so do so, you can see how much we pay to be able to broadcast. And then you can choose to support us if you want or if you cannot. If you cannot, that's perfectly okay. But I just feel that it's okay for me to at least tell everyone, you know, the situation and so that everyone can make their own decision. All right. So um, I received this email actually two days ago, but I haven't thought about, I, I forgot about sharing it. And I was checking my email a minute ago and I saw it and I'm like, well, here's my first opportunity to share this. So we're going to, we're going to get to long gospel in just a second. But before we do so, here's the email I received. This is the electronic receipt from Sermon Audio, and we would like to thank you sincerely for your membership with us. Your account has been charged a total of $49.95 and will appear in your statement as Sermon Audio. This payment, this payment represents the monthly membership fee to keep broadcasting your sermons, videos, and live webcasts to a worldwide audience. Then it gives us a link to our homepage. And then here's what we have available. This is just available on the Church One app and the Sermons 2.0 app. This does not this does not give all the content that is available on all of our different, you know, platforms, but just on the Church One app alone and the Sermons 2.0 app, we currently have 2,821 messages available. 2,821 messages available. Our sermons have now been played on the Church One Sermons 2.0 app platform alone 124,000 times. 124,000 times alone, or just on those platforms, Sermons 2.0 and Church One. So let me say that again. We have 2,821 messages available on the Church One app and the Sermons 2.0 app. They have been played 124, 124,000, 124 and 39, 124,000 times and 39. There you go. 124,000 times, right? If I can say that correctly. 124, 39 times. I think, I think uh, that's, that's, Pretty good numbers. Those are not great numbers. 124,039 is not a great number. Um, compared to what we do on other platforms, but hey, we're, we're slowly but surely growing, but that's, that's a lot. So we have over 2,000 sermons, over 124,039 times have our messages been played. The webcast total viewers of all time, this is how many webcast viewers we've had, 6,089, 
That's not great, but that's, that's pretty, that's pretty good. We have broadcasted. This is how many hours we have broadcasted over 1,132 hours, 1,132. 1,132 hours is how we, how many hours we have broadcasted just on the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church One app. Now, I don't know if you find any of that valuable. I don't know if you are happy with that. I do know this. When it comes to how much content we produce, very few people can match that, okay? I don't know how many sermons your church has online, and I don't know how many hours they broadcast a week, but I think that we provide a lot of content. And if you find any of it to be valuable at all, if you find any of it to be valuable, especially the content on Sermons 2.0 and the Church One app, please consider if you're using the Church One app, it's very easy. If you're using the Church One app, let me pull it up. If you're looking at the Church One app, as soon as you open it at the home tab, you'll see right there to the right, give. You hit give, it takes you to a site, and there you go. You can uh, you can give through PayPal and that goes directly to the church account, does not come to my personal account. On the Sermons 2.0 app, if you're looking at the Sermons 2.0 app, if you go to, well, there's a search bar right there at the top. If you type in Theology Central, Theology Central, you will, you will, you're going to get all of our series, but if you open one of our series, um, let's see here, how do you get to, let's just go to Theology Central Hang on. Here we go. Let's go to home. There we go. Theology Central. Let's do it all the way. Theology. See here. There's sermons. There's all of our uh, series. You may not. It may not be as easy to find here. Theology Central. Uh, there. Okay. Well, you find sermons if you go to one of our sermons. And then you'll see the broadcaster. I wish it would bring up broadcaster. Uh, there you go. And it'll have the give tab right there. So you can find us on Theology uh, Sermons 2.0 app. You can find us on the Church One app. And you can hit the give tab if you so desire. And again, we're, we're just, I'm just decided that I'm going to start giving that information. I think it's perfectly okay to do so. So we were just charged $49.95 for broadcasting on the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church One app. We currently on those apps have 2,821 messages available. Uh, they have been played over 124,039 124, uh, we have our webcast has been viewed over six thousand times, and we have broadcasted for over one thousand one hundred and thirty-two hours. One thousand one hundred and thirty-two hours. If you think any of that content has been valuable, helpful, or you want to support that content, then consider giving. If you don't, perfectly okay. If you hate it, perfectly obviously don't give. And if you don't think it's that important, don't give. Or if you just don't have the ability, don't give. All right. But we want to tell everyone about that. Now, there we go. The next time we get another bill, I'll let you know, and you can decide what you want to do. Now, are you ready? It's time for Law and Gospel. 
ladies and gentlemen, we started this series back in October of 2022. We've done well over 90 hours of teaching on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I think it's the most important series I have ever worked on in my entire life, and I'm doing my very best to try to convince you that it's the most important series you've ever listened to in your entire life. Have I accomplished that? I don't know. I want to accomplish that not through emotional manipulation or through hype. I want to try to convince you of that just by demonstrating to you over and over and over how important this is and understanding how to interpret the Bible, understanding the Bible itself, and understanding your Christian life. You need a proper distinction between law and gospel. And it's so important because if you do not get a proper distinction between law and gospel, your gospel will be nothing more than law masquerading as gospel, and that is poison and it's detrimental to your Christian life. So I'm doing my best. We have worked on this and worked on this, and currently we're doing what we're calling Law and Gospel Redo. We're kind of going back to the beginning of this entire series, and we're kind of, in a sense, reviewing, reminding, redoing to ensure that you understand, to ensure that we can get everyone on the same page. And we're utilizing the book that we were using at the very beginning— God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther. Um, we have been utilizing this in this book. There are 25 theses, theses on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We're currently looking at theses number three, which reads, Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. Let me read that again. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and theologians in particular. Now, what we are doing in this kind of redo is we're utilizing Issues ETC radio program. Issues ETC, it's a radio program slash podcast. You should subscribe to it today, Issues ETC. They're doing a series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So what we're doing is we're taking, because it's a radio program, we're taking their individual segments, right, that they do between their, their commercials, and then we're utilizing each segment for our own episode. We're offering critique, analysis, Obviously, turning it into something more than what they're offering, but I think it's been beneficial, helpful, and again, we would challenge you to go listen to all of their uh, episodes, uh, you know, without me interrupting it and, and analyzing and critiquing it. You can hear them so you don't have all of those interruptions and uh, you can benefit greatly from it. All right, but are you ready? Here we go. God's no, God's yes. The proper distinction between law and Gospel. CFW author issues ETC. Let's see what they have to say. They're currently, we've already done a little bit of work on this thesis. Let's see what they continue to do. I think they're getting ready to talk about Peter. Let's see what, where they go and what we can understand. Let's do this. Are you ready? I hope you're, I'm waiting for you to tell me you're ready. Okay, you're ready. All right, here we go. Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We continue our series with Pastor Will Whedon on the distinction between law and gospel. Will hosts a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord 
endures forever. Will, you began a study today on the book of Acts. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, Acts is volume two of St. Luke's Gospel, and it's really misnamed when we say the Acts of the Apostles. It is very clearly the ongoing acts and teaching of Jesus through his apostles to the world, and it details the history of the early church as it moves out from its mission center in Jerusalem throughout the Roman province of Asia into Europe. And then finally, we're told, you know, it's, it St. Paul lands there in Rome. So from there, of course, it's going to spread throughout the entirety of the ancient world. It's a wonderful story of the spread of the good news. Luke just keeps using this refrain, and the word of the Lord grew, meaning the people of God just kept saying the, the, the good news of Jesus to one another, and people kept believing it as the message spread. You can listen to Pastor Whedon's daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on the book of Acts at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. So Walter takes up the example of Peter in Luke chapter 5, where he famously utters, directed to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Yeah, and, and this is just a fascinating passage, right? Jesus... He absconded with Peter's boat. He's there teaching in it. And while all this is happening, Peter and the guys are up, are on shore, mending their nets and stowing them away, getting them ready for being able to go home. Jesus took their boat so they couldn't quite just leave. And finally, he decides he's done teaching and he tells them, hey, let's go out into the lake and you can drop down your nets for a catch. I mean, can you see them, all the fishermen looking at each other like, oh, right. The, the land-loving rabbi is about to instruct us on the art of fishing. Lovely. And interestingly, Peter says to Jesus, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. And I wonder if Jesus just gave him that look because he caves. He says, but at your word, we will let down the nets. And I really anticipate that Peter and Andrew and James and John were intending to be able to say, see, we told you there was nothing here. There were no fish right in this area where we were working last night. Okay, now, th- this preachers do this all the time. You have these texts, right? We read them, and then we just start, boom, adding. <laughs> we start throwing in maybe the look. Maybe the words, maybe the thoughts, maybe the motives. Now, it's fun to speculate that way. And it makes it for better preaching because people start laughing like, yeah, yeah. And they because they can relate to it because you're describing something of an emotion or a feeling that any of us may have. Now, it's one thing to say, this is what I would have felt. This is what I would have been thinking. This is what I would have been doing. See, now we can do that because we're speaking about something we know, but we got to be very careful not to try to act like we know what Peter was thinking unless Unless the text gives us a clear indication, it's so simple to do this in preaching. I know I've done it a million times. I've been so guilty of it because you preach it and then you typically read it. Then you kind of go back and describe it or or explain it, right? And so you want to do so in somewhat of an interesting way. So the next thing you know, you start adding this emotion and these motives and how, uh, look, how much can you do that? 
before you're actually, listen, adding to the word of God. What's even worse? How much can you do that to you're actually covering up the word of God with your own version of it? How much can a pastor do that before they're actually blinding the people from seeing the actual text? You're giving them, you're imposing motive, emotion, personality on a text that may not actually give that. And once people get motive, emotion, or personality to a text, they're going to read, they're going to read that idea into their interpretation. This is such a dangerous thing to do in teaching. It, it's hard to do this when you're teaching kids. You want to tell the story, right? So you'll tell that you'll add a little bit of humor. You'll add a little bit of drama you'll, because it's easy to do. It's easy to do in preaching. But my, my question for everyone is when is it, when, when does it cross the line? When does it cross the line? You know you've sat there in, in sermons where pastors are good at this and you've laughed and you're like, and maybe afterwards you're all happy going, man, that was a good sermon and you felt like it was a good day in church. But I wonder, did you truly see God's word or did you see the story the pastor imposed on the text? Now he's adding a lot here. He's adding a possible look Jesus gave them. He's imposing motive inside of Peter and the disciples. He's doing all. And now he may be right, but you just got to be very careful if the text doesn't tell you. Now, what I would tend to do is read the text and go, hmm, I don't, why is Peter reacting this way? Why is he, maybe there was something in him that demonstrates that he had a bad attitude and now he's convicted. Could, I mean, then you can at least raise the question and speculate, but based off something found in the text. But then even there, we've got to be careful. We have to be careful, all right? So I'm just saying, when you listen to sermons and the pastors start, do, they start doing this and they may be very talented. They may be very, very eloquent. I mean, I wasn't very eloquent in saying 139 or wait, 100, whatever the number was. There was some number I was trying to give you that I was messing it all up. And this, and the introduction to this, right, was at 189,039, whatever it was. I was, I was messing up the number some horrible way, right? So they may be more eloquent. They may be more well-spoken. They may be great storytellers. It may be great. They may use every communication technique that you're supposed to use. They've got inflection in their voice. They don't go too loud. And sometimes they'll get quiet enough to make you kind of move to the edge of your seat to hear. They'll add dramatic pauses. They will good eye contact. And you're 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 pulled in. And you're like, man, you made me feel like I was there. You made it come alive. Did they make it come alive? Or did they create their own scene from their own imagination? imposed it on the text. And from that point forward, you read that into the text and it impacts how you interpret the text. I know that this is what, not what this is necessarily about, but whenever that, I mean, look, if I was to preach that, I would probably do exactly what he did. I'm not saying I'm any better, but it's something that I'm constantly struggling with myself about. It's like, what do I do here? I got this text. If I tell the story, I know I'm going to start adding I know I'm going to start doing it. So you can draw your own conclusion. And to their everlasting shock and surprise, 
the nets start to pull and not just to pull, but they're so filled to overflowing that they even begin to tear. And Peter and Andrew are beckoning to James and John in the other boat. They begin pulling this stuff ashore. You can sort of see Jesus standing there with this massive haul of fish, them flopping this way and that in the glistening sun, and Peter dropping to his knees as all of this unfolds around him. He may not be the brightest bulb in the pack, right? But he's bright enough to figure this out. This man just commanded the fish of the sea to swim into my net. This man did this. Who is this man? This man can only be the Lord of the sea itself. And so amid all the flopping fish, Peter falls down to his knees and basically says, clear out, get out of here, leave me alone. I am a sinful man, O Lord. You don't want to be hanging out with the likes of me, not you, not the one who can command the fish to jump into the nets. You don't want to be with a person like me. And as Peter weighs all of that, you can see his his true contrition as he thinks about his sin and his life, and he realizes, I'm in the presence of God here. Now, personally, I think, once again, this is another example of something I constantly say over and over and over. When we see God as he truly is, then we see ourselves as we truly are. I mean, and I I, I say that, but obviously I take that from Calvin and Calvin's Institutes, but it's over and over. Anytime we are truly, we truly see God as he is, we truly recognize him. It, in this case, Peter's physically there. He's seeing the, the manifestation of the power of the creator of the universe. He's seeing that power, just a little bit of it. And he realizes God is God and I am not. And he, he realizes how sinful it is. That's why the more time we can, we, we put ourselves in front of God's law and the more time we put ourselves in front of his word, if we truly allow ourselves to see God as he is, you'll be absolutely broken and humbled because you're going to see yourself as you truly are. And what are you? Let me read what Peter said. Depart from me for I am a sinful man. You are a sinful man. You are a sinful woman. You are a sinful person. And it doesn't matter the sin. You are a sinner. We all have them. We all have to recognize that and be broken over that. It's the same move that Isaiah has, right, in in Isaiah 6. Many times that reading from Isaiah 6 is paired with this from Luke 5. Woe is me. I am a sinful man. I am from a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it's just the same sort of oy vey moment. I'm dead meat. And yet Peter's not dead meat because Jesus doesn't come among us to frighten us with the law. He comes among us to speak to us his good news, his do not be afraid. From now on, it's people you're going to be catching for me. It's a beautiful moment, and I'm glad that uh, Walter grabbed hold of it and used that as a supreme example of how hard it is to distinguish between law and gospel. In that moment, all Peter heard in his conscience was law. He did not have the ability in that moment when he was scared by his sin to actually hear and believe the gospel itself. And I would say 
the law has never done its work properly in you until you fall down and say, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Until you're like, woe is me. I am a man you know, of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean hands. I, woe is me. I am undone. Until you feel the weight of the law, then the law has never truly done its work in you. When you feel that you've been broken by that, then, then what you need is the full sweetness of the gospel with no law added in. You just need the gospel. Now, I know we always get worried that if you give the gospel to someone who's broken by the law, that then they will take advantage of it. But I think if they're really broken by the law, it won't be even thinking about taking advantage of it. It will just run there because they know that's their only hope and they're looking for rescue. They're looking for forgiveness. They're looking for hope. They're looking for rest. They're looking for peace. They're looking for eternal life. Walter then dives into some of Luther's reflections on law and gospel. What do we find there? Yeah, he does. I think before he does, though, doesn't he give us – yeah, he gives us one more scripture passage. Oh, yes, there's a yeah. 1 John 3. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really a key one that we need to, to think about. 1 John 3, verses 19 and 20. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So when our heart doesn't condemn us, Walter says, well, it's easy to distinguish between the law and the gospel. But the Christian may get into a condition where his heart does condemn him. Do what he will. He can't silence the accusing voice within. It calls to him again and again, and it just keeps on throwing up to him, reminding him of his former sins. And he says, the recollection of some long-forgotten sin may suddenly start up in him, and then he is seized with a terrible fright. Now, if that moment, if the person can rightly divide law and gospel, he's going to fall at Jesus' feet, and he's going to take comfort in Jesus' merit. But Walter says that is by no means easy to do. One who is spiritually dead regards it as foolishness to torment oneself with former sins. He becomes increasingly indifferent toward all sins. But a Christian man, Christian feels his sin. And a Christian hasn't a conscience that's been awakened. He feels that when his conscience is speaking against him. But in the end, after Christians have learned to make the proper and practical use of the distinction between law and gospel, they get to join St. John in saying, God's greater than my heart. He's rendered a different verdict on men sinning. And that applies also to me. Walter says, man, you are blessed if you have learned this difficult art. You will always be no more than beginners at this art. And so here's his summary of what Christians need to do on the basis of First John 3, he says, remember this, when the law condemns you, as it always will, then immediately lay hold on the gospel. I want you to write that down. I want you, when, you, when the law condemns you, 
immediately lay hold upon the gospel. When the law condemns you, it's not about, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to buy some extra Bible studies. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give money. I'm going to, no, 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 no. I'm going to go to a conference. I'm going to go on a retreat. I'm going to, I'm going to get an accountability partner. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cancel my subscription to the, we start with all of these dues. We, we turn to the law to help us. When your heart condemns you, you immediately lay hold upon the gospel. You immediately go to the gospel and know that the gospel is greater than your sin. The gospel is greater than your heart. Your gospel is greater. The gospel is greater than your guilt. Now, I know some people go, but, but no, 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 no. Because, because then, then that's going to leave someone to just continue to live that way. I know people were always so worried about the possible danger of the gospel. We're always so worried about how someone may abuse it that we want to remove the gospel from the equation. But you need the gospel. When you are condemned, the gospel, that's what you flee to. And then guess what? You'll find rest. You'll find peace. You'll find forgiveness. And you know what you should find? A greater desire just out of love because of God's mercy. You are so grateful that then you want to do better. You, you, you don't want to go back to that sin. You want to move forward. Now, you're still got the sinful nature. So when I say you don't want to, there's going to be a part of you that always wants to, but there's going to be this desire now. And, and if you even think about it, if you even think about it, look at how Romans 12, just remember this, Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It is the mercies of God that is the motivation that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which unto God. It's God's mercy that should lead it to that. It's God's goodness. It's his forgiveness. It's his mercy that should lead you out of gratitude to want to pursue this. Now, you're, now there's going to be a part of you that never wants to pursue it. That's the never-ending reality of the Christian life. You're going to constantly sin and fall short. But when you feel the weight of sin, run to the gospel. It's not, I need 15 books on how to stop the sinning. I need to get to the gospel and be forgiven. I need to hear that Christ died for my sins. I need to know my sins have been paid for. I know I need to re- be reminded that I am secure and covered in, uh, and that God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me by faith alone. That is typically not the, sadly, the solution we typically provide to Christians who fall into sin is not gospel, it's law. It's basically, you know, self-help books, self-improvement, something to think about. You don't argue with the law. It's true in what it says, but it cannot finally condemn you when you grab hold of the good news of him who endured the punishment on your behalf. It's a beautiful thing. And then to Luther, what does he bring us from the reformer? He actually points out that, you know, nobody has understood this whole thing so clearly from the days of the apostles forward till we get to Luther. I mean, it, it, is, it is stunning how beautifully Luther sees in, into this whole truth. So here's some of what he gives us. He says, God has given us his word in these two forms, the law and the gospel, 
The one is from him as well as the other, and to both he has attached a distinct order. The law is to require of everyone perfect righteousness. The gospel is to present freely the righteousness demanded by the law to those who don't have it, that is, to all men. Now then, whoever has not satisfied the demands of the law and is captive under sin and the power of death, let him turn to the gospel. Let him believe what is preached concerning Christ, that is, that he is truly the precious Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he reconciled man with his Father in heaven and from pure grace freely and for nothing, gives to all who believe this everlasting righteousness, everlasting life and bliss. Let him cling solely to this message. Let him call upon Christ, begging him for grace and forgiveness of sins. And since this great gift is only obtained by faith, let him firmly believe the message and he will receive just as he believes. A little bit more from Luther. I observe in my own case and in that of others who know how to talk about this distinction in the very best fashion. I think he means Melanchthon there. Melanchthon was also very expert at this. How difficult it is to talk about the law being a different word and doctrine from the gospel. That's a common achievement, and it's soon accomplished. But to apply the distinction in our practical experience and to make this art operative, that is labor and sorrow. He, he goes on sort of describing it, Walter does saying, like two hostile forces, law and gospel sometimes clash with each other's in a person's conscience. And the gospel says to him, you have been received into God's grace. While the law says to him, don't believe that. Look at your past life. Look at how many and grievous your sins are. Examine your thoughts and the desires you've harbored in your mind. On an occasion like this, it is difficult to divide the law and the gospel. When this happens to a person, he must say to the law, away with you. Your demands have all been fully met and you have nothing more to demand of me. There is one who has paid my debt. This difficulty does not occur to a person who is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's soon through with the law. But the difficulty is quite real for a person who has been converted. He may run into the opposite extreme, and he may end up coming nigh unto despair. Powerful, powerful section there in Walther and commenting on Luther. So he takes up Luther again where very famously Luther says, place any person who is well-versed in the skill of distinguishing law and gospel at the top and call him a doctor that we would say a teacher of Holy Scripture for without the Holy Spirit it is impossible to master this distinction. Why does Luther go so far as to say that? Well, because if you can pull this off in the moments of your own despair or when you're dealing with a sinner who is despairing over their own sin, this is clearly a wisdom that comes from God and not something that a human being dreamed up on its own. There's no way we would have come up with this. If you look at how human reason will try to deal with it, uh, well, we'll deal with this in, uh, in a little bit when we'll talk about the, the scene in Hammer of God where, where a man tries to console a person with the gospel. Well, God's good. Yeah, I know he's good. He's good and I'm evil. That's the problem. How do you actually know how to do it? Luther says no one can do it unless the Holy Spirit has taught them themselves. 
Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part three of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel on this Monday, May the 22nd. Got about another half hour with Pastor Will Whedon and then Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, joins us to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the day of Pentecost. Okay, we'll stop there. Some very powerful things there. Hopefully you heard that that lengthy quote from uh, Luther. I may try to look up that lengthy quote from Luther if I can. Um, and, and if I can find it or if anybody else can find it, email it to me, newsif at yahoo.com, and we'll utilize it or we'll post it um, at theologycentral.net. But I was sitting here thinking about this. I do agree that to learn this is the highest art because, and it's so important on how to deal with yourself and your own sin and how to deal with other people who fall into sin. What is the correct way? And I want to go back to that part that they, they quoted here. Remember this, when the law condemns you, then immediately lay hold upon the gospel. When, whenever we fall, we have to immediately run to the gospel, not self-improvement, not all of this law, 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 law. Um, okay, good. All right. Now, okay, th- this, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this in just a second, but someone in the comments just made a section, uh, uh, made a comment uh, in the comment section. All right. They said, I'm wondering how the spirit teaches us to present the gospel. Okay. Now this is where obviously I have a little bit of differ, a different opinion with Walther and most of Christianity because Christianity loves to say the spirit is the one who teaches us the spirit. Well, if the spirit is the one teaching us, then we would all agree on the proper distinction between law and gospel. If the spirit is the one doing the teaching, then um, then everyone would understand that. Now, we talked about this early on in this series. I reject that idea. I think we learn about the proper distinction between law and gospel in the school of experience. And I think the Holy Spirit teaches us as far as the Holy Spirit inspired scripture and we learn in the scripture. I don't believe that there's any extra thing going on because if there's an extra thing going on, we've got 2000 years of church history. I just need the Holy Spirit to teach everyone the same doctrine about, I don't know, baptism. I need, I need the Holy Spirit to teach everyone the same doctrine. I don't know about salvation since nobody can agree on anything. Clearly that seems to imply the Holy Spirit's not leading us into all truth. So I don't ever try to say the Holy Spirit's the one doing the teaching other than in this way. He inspired the scriptures. So he teaches us because he gives us the authoritative book, the word of God. And then when it comes to law and gospel, I think we learn it through the school of experience while we're also at the same time reading and studying the Bible. All right. Now I'm going to go back to this. I hope that helps uh, in some way, shape or form. I know 99.9% of you will disagree with that, but I would just say, if you're going to say, no, the Holy Spirit is teaching you. Well, then why isn't there just complete agreement within Christianity? The Holy Spirit would be teaching all of us, right? Unless he's only teaching you. And just think the, just think what happens if I, as a pastor say, look, I was working on my sermon last night and the Holy Spirit showed me this. The Holy Spirit taught me this. Then you could never question my interpretation because supposedly it comes from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. That, that's very dangerous. Okay. And then you could say the same thing. And what happens if the Holy Spirit taught you something different than he taught me? Then who is right? That just leads to millions of problems. All right. So back to this. As I was listening to all of this, I was thinking about how important it is that when the law condemns you, you immediately run to the gospel and you don't run to self-help and you don't run to the law. 
And I know immediately some people get nervous, like, no, 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 no. That person may need the gospel, but they need to hear, here's the gospel, but you need to do this and this and this and this, and you need to stop this and you need to do this and you need to stop this. Because if we don't, they're, they're going to, they're going to be comfortable in their sin and they're going to keep sinning. And because we were so scared, the gospel scares us. The gospel scares us. It's it's been said before. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this. I don't remember. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, so I don't want to say who said it because I don't know for sure. But I will say that here's a true principle. If if you have never been accused of being an antinomian, you've probably never preached the gospel correctly. If you've never been accused of easy believism, you've probably never preached the gospel correctly. If you're constantly trying to to put a wall around the gospel to protect it, you're always trying to say, okay, you're you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But 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 you got to do this and this and this and this and this, and you start keep adding law. You no 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 no. You you are not preaching the gospel. You are infecting it with law. But when you preach the gospel, that the issue for your sin is Christ and Him crucified alone period, the end. You are forgiven by your faith in Christ. No, no work. I'm not going to talk about works or anything right now. You are, that's your hope. Oh boy. Someone's going to call you easy believism and someone's going to call you an antinomian. And once you, once they call you that, and sometimes I get offended because it makes me mad because it's like, well, clearly you've never read a book on the subject of antinomianism, but I'll take it as a badge of honor because that means I'm preaching the gospel correctly. I'm preaching how free it is. I'm preaching that it's full of grace. All right. But we, we, we are so scared of that and it makes no sense to us because our concern is someone will just take it. But I really want you to try to grasp this point. When the law truly does its work, you are broken. When, when you truly see God as he is, you're going to see yourself as you truly are. And you're going to be, woe is me. You're going to know. You're going to feel the weight of that guilt. You're going to feel the terror of your sin. You're truly going to be broken if the law has done its work. And then you're going to run to Christ because there's nowhere else to run. Trying to fix it, trying to do better is not the solution. You're going to run there and you're going to be saved because of his blood, because your sins are going to be washed away. They're going to be paid for. And the imputed righteousness Righteousness of Christ is going to be accredited to your account and you're going to stand before him holy and you should immediately be filled with such gratitude and such love for what God has done for you that then it will hopefully motivate you. Now, of course, you're always going to have the part of you that wants to fight against it, but it's going to make you want to pursue him in some way, shape or form more than maybe you, the more, again, the more you see yourself as a sinner, the more you know you need his grace and the more gratitude that develops. So the more it begins to impact how you live your daily life. Gratitude is some, I think to me, the God, a gospel motivation is a, is always better than a law-based motivation. And Paul does that in Romans 12. Because of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice. What should motivate you to present yourself as a living sacrifice? It's God's mercy, not God. It's not God's law. The law never motivates to goodness. The law only provokes sin. Let me give you an example, all right? And I'm going to use this for my own personal example because while I was broadcasting in this episode, here was what I was thinking. Well, wait a minute. That introduction, 
I tried to read the number. 124,039. And I tried to pro, I tried to state it as 124,000, 124, 129,000. I, I was trying to say it in an incorrect way. Instead of just saying 124,039, that's how many sermons have been played, 124,039. I tried to say it some, I don't know, I don't know what I was doing. Completely incorrect. And I stumbled over my words. And so guess what? I'm supposed to be talking about this brilliant thing about law and gospel. And all I can think about my mind is you messed up. You messed up. You messed up. You messed up. Now I'm supposed to be listening to them talk about law and gospel. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I could, I could take this file. I could upload it to audacity and I could possibly, I could delete some of that. Where it's just finally where I, where I finally say it right, right? And I could kind of remove where I stumbled and it would sound much more professional. Yeah, that's, that's what, and I started thinking, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. Because if I don't see, people are just going to see my mistake. They're just going to mock that. They're going to remember. They're not going to remember anything else they say. They're going to mock that. They're going to remember or they're that I'm going to look foolish and I'm going to look stupid. I was just so preoccupied with my failure. And my first thought was, what can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? Now, if I get messages, if I get messages attacking me, mocking me, saying you should do better, you should work harder, you should spend more time, you know, preparing, you should know how to read 124,039. Any kid in school knows how to do that. Why did you stumble over? Like if people attack then I, guess what? I won't be motivated to try harder. I would just be discouraged, depressed, embarrassed, probably not want to do another broadcast, nothing like that. But if I get an email saying, hey, hey man, don't worry about that. The broadcast was great. It was excellent. You know, I've messed up on things like that too. Hey, thank you so much. It was an amazing message. I was greatly encouraged. That was greatly challenging. Guess what? I would be more motivated by a gracious gospel message than I would by someone saying, you need to do better. You should delete that. You should work harder. That a law doesn't do this. I want you to realize that so many times in the Christian life, we've tried to fix everything. We try to fix people's sin and struggle with law instead of gospel. Now, if they're not broken over sin, yes, they need law, but someone has fallen into sin and they're broken. They, what they need and their heart condemns them. They need the gospel. More law, more do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Because it almost immediately turns into, well, brother, I know you've sinned. Now we're going to have to start working on this. So what's your plan? What are you going to do? Or wait, here's the consequences you're going to have to face, right? You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do this. We're going to take this away from you. You can never do this. It's just, it's just do's, don'ts, do's, don'ts. That's not the scriptural way to approach it. You're broken. Do you understand the seriousness? You see their brokenness. You see, you see their heart condemns them. Then run to the gospel. Give them the gospel. They hear the words of grace. They hear the words that Christ has died for you and your sins are forgiven. It is finished. 
that's the key to motivation. That's the key to spiritual advancement. I know it's counterintuitive because we're no, 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 no. People are just going to take advantage of it and just, and just keep sinning. Well, clearly they haven't been broken over their sin because if they're broken over their sin, oh, they may keep sinning, but they're going to constantly know that it's sin, constantly run to Christ. And because of his mercy and love, you're going to heart, hopefully will be filled with gratitude and thankfulness that it then hopes that will lead you to want to present your body as a living sacrifice, even though you're going to constantly struggle. I, I don't know if that illustration works. But my mess up, all I could think about is I need to do better. I need to delete it. I need to do, it was all about what I need to do, what I need to do, what I need to do, what I need to do. What It was all about performance, what I, perception, do, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do better next time. Delete the whole thing and do it over. Like everything was about action instead of just saying, I messed up. I can't, I, I acknowledged my mess up. I've tried to correct my mess up. I can't do anything. I'm just going to rest and hopefully the fact that I'm a human being and I messed up. And that hopefully, in spite of my weakness, in spite of my foolishness, somehow the message will be used for a good thing and a positive thing. That doesn't excuse my mess up because there's no excuse in not being able to say 139,039 or whatever the number is, 124,039 correctly. There is no excuse for that. So I'm not excusing it. Am I humiliated by it? Yes. Do I get caught up in a performance cycle or do I just rest in the fact that I'm human, I'm weak, I'm foolish, and God uses the weak and the foolish things. When it Now, in a roundabout way, when I fall into sin, I don't make any excuse for it. You admit it. You, you acknowledge it before God. I have sinned in my thought, word, and deed. And then I'm going to cling to the God. My focus is the gospel, not the 127 ways I'm going to try to fix it and stop doing it. And then when I run to the gospel and I hear those beautiful words of forgiveness, of absolution, your sins are forgiven because of my shed blood, then I'm filled with gratitude and love because God's, the gospel is the right motivation not the law motivation. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and theologians in particular. And it, what makes it so hard is trying to how to figure out how it works in everyday life. There you go. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. May something good come from our ongoing discussion of law and gospel and trying our best to figure out the proper distinction between the two. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Saturday. God bless.